Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Monty Python's Flying Circus tonight comes to you live from the grillo Match snack bar, Paynton. <laughs> Hello to you live from the grillo Match snack bar, Paynton. And so, uh, without any more ado, let's have the titles. Welcome to another episode of Just Another Fanboy. I'm your host, my name is Steven, and I got a real treat for you today, folks, because today, as this episode drops, October 5th, 2021, we celebrate 52 years of Monty Python's Flying Circus, because it was on this day, 52 years ago, in 1969, that the very first episode of Monty Python's Flying Circus first aired over there across the pond on the BBC. And frankly, the world hasn't been the same since. Now, if you're unaware, Wikipedia tells us that Monty Python's Flying Circus is a British surreal sketch comedy series created by and starring the comedy group Monty Python, consisting of Graham Chapman, John Cleese, Eric Idle, Terry Jones, Michael Palin, and Terry Gilliam, also known as the Pythons. The series stands out for its use of absurd situations mixed with risque and innuendo-laden humor, sight gags, and observational sketches without punchlines. Live-action segments were broken up with animations by Gilliam, often merging with the live-action to form segues. All in all, it was quite funny, and it changed comedy forever. And that, folks is why we celebrate. But I'm not doing it alone this time, ladies and gentlemen. No, this year I am joined by two of the fellas from the Half Hour Wasted podcast, Frank A. Rincon and Bill McGonnell. Say hello, Frank. Hello. Say hello, Bill. Hello. Great. Thanks, guys. And with that, regretfully, we say goodbye. Say goodbye, gentlemen. Goodbye. Goodbye. Oh, sorry about that. My producers are telling me that we need to stretch this thing out a bit more. So how about we just throw away the script and make it up as we go along? Sound good? Sure. Sure. Then let's begin. Monty Python's a flying circus.
So, Frank. Yes. Tell us how you were first introduced to Monty Python's Flying Circus. Well, um, PBS specifically, I think that's probably how, how anyone of our age group probably learned about it. And uh, at the time when it came on, that was probably mid to late 70s. And uh, when I did discover it, it, it was definitely um, I was trying to I, I definitely appreciated it. But I was trying to understand it as well, because uh, at the time, the only other skit shows I'd been exposed to were things like um, uh, Saturday Night Live or Carol Burnett and uh, even Laugh-In. And while Laugh-In may, may have some similarities to Monty Python, Monty Python is in a – it's just something else completely. And it's timeless, too. I mean, I think a lot of those jokes still land today. Uh, as well as they did when when they first came out, but it was definitely it was definitely in those formative years of the 1970s, and I felt like I had discovered something secret, you know, yeah. something special. And you know, when I tried to describe it to friends, they were often you know like, "What are you talking about?" or "That sounds dumb." And it wasn't until they saw it that they really got to appreciate it. That that actually makes me think of something. Before we get to you, Bill, let me ask real quick, both of you. We'll start with Frank. Did you find then growing up and do you find still now that when it comes to the people around you that you and maybe one or two others are the only ones who enjoy stuff like Monty Python that not a lot of other people get it? Um, I would say yes. And I think that has to do with the company that you keep. You know, you you surround yourself around people who love the things you love for the most part. You know, when you're in a in an office type setting, <clears throat> you're going to get a little bit of everyone. But you normally gravitate to those people who, you know, have a certain type of sense of of humor and stuff. Uh, so, yeah, I, w- I would say most people I hang out with uh, are fans of or at least are aware of Monty Python. How about you, Bill? Do you do you have a lot of friends that are into it? Or you, do you, I mean, obviously, Frank and Bill or Frank and Brad, but. Well, I guess I'd uh, start off by saying that um, I was really impressed by Frank's answer, and um, he is an incredible broadcaster, very professional, and uh, this absolutely goes to show everybody why he is the star of our other show, uh, and uh, I am merely the uh, the third wheel who squeaks far too often. Um, with that said, what was the question again? <laughs> well, do you find that within your uh, group of friends and family and, and uh, co-workers and whatnot that you are one of the very few that, that are into Monty Python? Um, these days, more, more yes. Um, when I was uh, a, a young lad, um, uh I think I had, uh, like Frank said, uh, it was it was a very good point. You do uh, tend to, you know, that, that's why like-minded people tend to congregate together is because they share the same value set. And uh, my value set was certainly informed by Monty Python. And of course, at the time, um, uh, we were speaking pre-show about um, uh, other uh, comedy acts that were out and about back there in the uh, uh, early to mid 70s. And the list was uh, far shorter than it is now. So you had fewer options. It was kind of like um, kids, uh, kids, you're going to want to sit down for this. When we were growing up, there were four channels. Okay, four. 
There are four channels, okay? Four (laughs) channels. And now there's a thousand, almost literally. So in that same vein, uh, back in those days, uh, um, you know, unless you were going to see Lenny Bruce or, you know, Steve Martin, or unless you tuned in to laugh in or something, uh, you didn't have a whole lot of comedy choices that we have these days. So uh, I think there were a lot more people that uh, gravitated towards Monty Python simply because it was one of the uh, far fewer uh, uh, selections that we had to choose from. Um, Now, of course, over here in America, um, we didn't get uh, Monty Python until 1975. And that reminds me of a story. Uh, you were asking Frank how he got into Monty Python, and uh, my path was uh, a little bit different than his. Um, uh, I was actually uh, met by the Lady of the Lake, uh, clad in the most uh, shimmering Semite, who lobbed at me the 16-ton DVD box set, which, <laughs> which I thought was uh, uh, awkward because, as we all know, DVDs weren't going to be invented for roughly another 20 years. And so uh, it took me a while to catch up to it. So instead of watching the DVD box set, because there was no DVD technology at the time, I had to content myself with watching the episodes on Saturday nights uh, on our PBS station, uh, airing directly after Doctor Who. Um, I had what I consider a blessed childhood. Yes. I mean, I have to imagine just holding on to that box set for all those years, not quite understanding what it was for, <laughs> just looking at the covers and marveling at the shiny discs. Well, and, and people on uh, people on the audio uh, platform can't see this, but I'm showing my box set to the to the men right now, and you can see that it's still CGC 9.8 graded. I only took it out of the plastic this morning. <laughs> Uh, in preparation for the show, because I wanted to impress you guys with how many DVDs I had. There's yeah. 16 freaking tons <laughs> worth of DVDs here, yeah. people. It's math. I used to own that, and unfortunately went through a period of uh, not enough money and had to sell it. <laughs> but uh, they have a whole new one out now. Have you seen anything about the new? They've they've gone in and they've uh, re you know. They've turned it into high def and they've recolored, not recolored it, but they've, what, what do they call that? They, they, they made it shiny and new and it looks yeah. so much better. Well, I'm holding out for the 8K remasters and I will not be satisfied until then. So, yeah, I, I would argue. And, and, uh, and you can, you know, we can debate on this, but uh, I think the best way to see Mighty Python is on a 13 inch screen uh, over, <laughs> over the air. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Why? Because yeah. there, uh, uh, there is something very joyful uh, about that. Uh, the remastering. I don't know if I need to see that foot in in uh, in 8K, but you know, uh, do your uh, do your bliss if you need need to be well, out that, there. I, I I would say uh, give me a VHS of Monty Python. I think I'd be pretty happy with that. Well, and that's the thing because <clears throat> if I owned it. I would probably re- I I would probably watch them all through once, and then I'd probably watch never watch it again because I've seen the episode so many times. But if I just happen to be flipping through the channels, which of course I never do anymore, thanks to Netflix and whatnot. But if I just happen to be flipping through some channels and I run across Monty Python, you know I'm going to stop and watch that entire episode because there's just something special about oh my gosh this is being broadcast right now. Yeah. Yeah. But do you do either of you remember 
distinctly the first time you ran across Monty Python? Uh, 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 let me jump in, Bill, because my answer is really uh, simple. Because I was thinking about this. No. Okay. <laughs> I, Bill? I do not. Um, I don't have a moment where I was just like, what is this? Uh, I guess uh, my answer is uh, similar in tone. Uh, I couldn't tell you the literal first time I ever laid eyes on it, but uh, uh, I distinctly remember uh, feeling like I literally grew up watching it. Like I always thought it was weird that my parents let me watch something that risque uh, at my young age. Uh, uh, In my later years, I went back and, and again did math people and uh, found out that uh, 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 fun fact, uh, Monty Python first showed on these shores, this side of the Atlantic um, in 1975. Uh, the PBS station in Dallas was the very first station in the nation. No pun intended. Excuse me. No rhyme intended. Wait, edit all yeah. this out. No, I'm kidding. It's okay. <laughs> Let's try that again with a little more emotion, Bill. Now, I'm barely <laughs> here, so uh, it's just like a play. This is me. This is uh, uh, I'm like a two out of ten right now. Um, I'm still waiting for the bath salts to kick in, so please forgive me. <laughs> so, so this is Bill's. Now, Bill's a uh, mean. He's always at a two. Well, you know, I just it's all, it's all about me and I, I've got uh, tremendous issues with uh, uh, my self-image and, you know, so I, I overcompensate by being uh, loud and brusque. Uh, it's just kind of how I do it. Uh, anyway, um, uh, no, I uh, so uh, oddly enough, uh, the Dallas PBS station was the very first station in the nation to get it. Uh, the second station was the Oklahoma City. PBS station, uh, probably because they're tied in the hip by a three hour drive uh, up the highway. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was one of the early adopters over here. I, I also got it, I believe, in uh, 75. And so that would have put me at the tender young age of about uh, seven, uh, seven to eight years old. Um, so you want to talk about something uh, being in my wheelhouse. Uh, I I. I give my parents credit for having the TV on that channel, by the way, because it was not a product of me going, Mommy, Daddy, I wish to watch the Pythons. You know, well, I'm sure. Going on. And I'm sure a lot of parents back then were like, oh, well, it's PBS. So right. it's educational. They well, can they watch this. Room, they were in the room watching it, too. Yeah. Um, uh, most of the time. Uh, but I fell in love at the exact same time with both doctors. Doctor Who and Monty Python. And I'm sorry, I realize this is not a Doctor Who podcast. No, it's not. It could hey, be. Not today, anyway. Well, I, uh, I, uh, I hope this isn't uh, uh, off the rails a little bit, but I, and I can't remember when I first was introduced to Benny Hill. Benny Hill wasn't on PBS, but at least where I grew up, but it came on some other channel late at night. And that was a British import. But they're totally different animals. Oh yeah, yeah. Many oh, yeah. hills and, and uh, overt to where uh, you you know Monty Python is a thinking man's 
<laughs> uh, program. You know, it, it's a little uh, Benny Hill will uh, both tell and show you the joke to where uh, Monty Python just might show you but not tell you what the joke yeah. was or vice versa. Tell you but not show you the joke. <clears throat> See, in Kansas, I'm fairly certain I have a memory of, of being up late on Saturday nights watching Monty Python and then watching Benny Hill right after. So I don't know if in Kansas they played Benny Hill on PBS or if I just switched the channel. I, I, I don't remember. But I do distinctly remember the first time I was introduced to Monty Python, which for me is kind of a big deal because my memories of my childhood are they're, they're, they're I don't have many. My my. My whole memory system doesn't work all that well, but I distinctly remember walking through my living room. I was heading to our basement where there were a bunch of toys. I don't remember how old I was. Um, I feel like I was in grade school, but my father was sitting on the couch watching the Holy Grail. (laughs) I don't recall. You know, I can't remember how he came about watching that on the television I don't know if we had a VCR at that point, if we were able to rent movies at that point. I don't remember. I just remember walking through the living room, looking at the screen and seeing these two knights fighting. And immediately I stopped because I'm like, ooh, knights with swords fighting. I'm, I'm, I'm a kid. I'm interested. But then it's, it's interspersed with this guy riding through this forest, but he's not on a horse. So immediately I'm even extra curious. And so I just kind of stand there and I watch the entire Black Knight scene. And I am my my dad just lets me, you know, limbs are being hacked off, blood spurting all over the place. And I'm practically on the floor rolling around laughing. And then I sit there for a while and watch more of it. And I didn't get all of it. I remember being at that age, I remember being kind of bored through certain scenes, uh, but the two scenes that stuck out to me were the Black Knight scene, which is when I walked in, and then when the French knights launched the cow over the over the wall. That just cracked me up as a kid. And then eventually, I run across it on PBS and uh, never did end up seeing all the episodes on PBS. Um And it wasn't until I think eventually in the 80s at some point, maybe late 80s, possibly even the 90s, Comedy Central. Well, it would have been the 90s. Comedy Central got the rights to broadcast Monty Python and they did a uh, a marathon. They 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 played all 45 episodes in a row. And I went out and I got a brick of blank VHS tapes. And I just sat in front of the TV and recorded all of it. And that was my that's how I got all the episodes the first time. Eventually, I got that DVD set like Bill's got. But uh, and now, of course, they're all on they're all on Netflix, um, along with uh, most of the movies. I don't think all the movies are on Netflix at this point, but. Mm-hmm. I haven't checked Net- Netflix's catalog uh, lately. I'll have to uh, fix that. Yeah, I think they got they they got uh, Monty Python two years ago. I think it was around this time two years ago that they got Monty Python. And I know if you haven't seen it, they have that really great documentary from a number of years back called Almost the Truth, which is like four uh, hour long episodes or, or two hour long episodes. And it's it's a really good documentary that takes you from their childhoods all the way to um 
well, I don't think I don't think they had done their their reunion at the O2 at that point, but it takes you up to whenever the the documentary was made. It's 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 really good. And it talks a lot. There's there's a lot on there about Monty Python first coming to America and that Dallas PBS station first being the the PBS station that played the uh the the episodes. There I think there's even a documentary on Netflix called Monty Python comes to America. And, and that's what they talk about. That's what a lot of that, that documentary is about and uh, how the manager or the program director of that station was uh, Luke and Owen Wilson's dad. Yeah. So recently, it's funny you mentioned that because recently that gentleman, uh, when I say recently, maybe within the past five years, he passed away. And uh, uh, a big to do about uh, his career was him bringing Monty Python to the States. You know, and, and, and my mom claims to this day that they went and saw Holy Grail in the theaters while she was like eight months pregnant with me. Now, I've since told her that that's not true because I was born three years earlier before the Holy Grail was even made. I was born in 72. The Holy Grail came out in like 75. I said, now, if, if you know, it was probably my little brother who was born in 75. But if, if you're going to stick to the story that it was me, then somehow you managed to see a screening of and now for something completely different in frickin Kansas. And I doubt that. And I doubt that ever happened. But uh, well. Well, I mean, if we, if, if we look back at, at Bill's story about the Lady of the Lake giving him those DVDs, yes. it is very probable that the Lady of the Lake broadcast a movie for your mom she, before yeah, she made that, you, you were in utero. She made that possible. But she talks about it because she never liked Monty Python. My dad was the Monty Python fan, and she's like, I'm sitting there in the theater watching this stupid movie, and I'm eight months pregnant with you. Like, great, Mom. Thanks. It wasn't me. Should we uh, should we get into why uh, girls don't understand Monty Python? <laughs> well, you know, I, I I hear that a lot, and I that I know a lot of girls that are into Monty Python. I'm sure you guys do too. Uh, they introduce they, me. They all right. I'll, I'll see what I can do. I'll, uh, I'll <laughs> Very single. I'll make some uh, some inquiries. But uh, I know I, there there are a lot of there's they have a big female fan base. Yeah, my my experience has usually been um, the the major complaint I, I hear from uh, uh, from women about Monty Python who don't like it is that it's just too silly is is always a complaint. But uh, I mean, like you, Stephen, I I, uh, I have some friends who are they're not rabid fans, but they definitely love Monty Python. They think Holy Grail is a great movie. And uh, and, you know, they're they're not they're, they won't quote them like guys do, <laughs> but definitely fans, you know, and they they are Monty Python is very silly, which is one of the reasons I was drawn to it. And thinking back over my history with Monty Python, you know, when I when I first discovered it, when I was a kid, everything that I loved were all the more the the sight gag type stuff, you know, the 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 Black Knight, the the uh the cow being launched over the the wall uh how to defend yourself against fresh fruit i remember that being just one of my absolute favorite sketches when i was a kid 
And it wasn't until I was uh, out of high school, I had gone into town one night to buy Christmas presents. And I, I run across this two disc CD set called Monty Python's Final Ripoff. And I still at that point wasn't as well versed in Python as I am now. So I, I bought this CD and I took it home. I was still living with my parents at the time. And by the time I got home, everybody in the house was asleep. And so I put the CD in, I put my headphones on, I got in bed and I had to work really hard not to laugh out loud and wake everybody else in the house up because there the the fish license sketch is on that freaking CD and the uh you know all audio versions if if anybody listening has never listened to any of the Monty Python albums that is some of the some of the best Monty Python out there cuz the, it's amazing what they can do with audio and and make it funny but I had the previous year, my senior year. Did you guys ever have uh, forensics in high school? It's like a no. it's like a acting sport club thing where you do debate and duet acting and and junk like that. No, I did not. No, no, I was a uh, I was a band and yearbook kid who uh, moonlighted with uh, my boys in the uh, the AV uh, club. So yeah. I got talked into joining forensics my senior year by this dude that said, we can do duet acting. And I've never done acting before. We can do Monty Python deal. And we, <laughs> we, we had to, you, you had to do a, 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 a bit that was a certain time frame, And we really wanted to do the black Knight scene, but it wasn't long enough. So we managed to combine the black Knight scene with the constitutional peasant scene where in the middle of Arthur and the Black Knight arguing about whether or not he can pass and Arthur telling him he's the king of the Britons, suddenly the Black Knight is doing all the king of the who, you know, that stuff. And we, we turned it into a whole thing and we won a freaking gold medal. Our first meet never did that well again in any other meet previously. Obviously, one of the judges was a Monty Python fan. But that night I was sitting there listening to the final ripoff. And the argument clinic sketch comes on. <laughs> I was so I was so happy and joyous and yet angry at the same time because I thought if I would have known about this stuff, my senior, <laughs> we could have been doing this in forensics. The argument clinic. Come on. And that's something I never would have understood as a kid that the argument clinic would have <laughs> just went right over my head as a kid. But uh, it's, it's uh, funny I, how I know we. Oh, go ahead, Stephen. Well, it's just funny how some stuff can appeal to the, the their humor is it's got a, a bit of a range to it, how it can appeal to certain aspects of, you know, your brain where, you know, the the Black Knight sketch is more about the visual gag. On the one hand, it's the visual gag. On the other hand, it's the whole the Black Knight being just standing up and saying, yes, I know you've chopped off both of my arms, but I'm still going to kick your ass. You know, I did just a flesh wound. You know, he just doesn't care. And it's uh, that's, I think, one of the great things about Monty Python is that they appeal. Uh, There's just so much range in their humor. And sometimes you can watch a sketch and enjoy it for a certain reason. And then years later, you watch it again and you realize there's more to it. There's there's more layers to that onion. And I think that's what's great about them. The uh, the Black Knight sketch uh, w- 
uh, aside from everything you described, uh, also has another visual gag in it in the bridge that he's protecting. Uh, <laughs> it's nothing. It, it's over a ditch. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you can step over that. Uh, later, later in the movie, they show real bridges, but the yeah. bridges that he is protecting is you can step over it and not even have to use the bridge. Yeah. You can just walk around them and step over. Yeah. The bridge. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I found myself, uh, um, I guess this says a lot about me, maybe, but I was immediately drawn to the the rabidly uh, um, absurdist brand of humor that, that they did. I, I yes, immediately yes. latched on to, uh, well, what makes it funny is that it doesn't make sense. I uh, uh, I thought, God dang it! This this freaking uh, people people can't see this, but I've got a a, a potted flower that's uh, that, that keeps brushing against my nose and is making me quite itchy. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yes. Uh, someday when this is released on uh, uh, 8K uh, remastered um, uh, UHF uh, DVD Blu-ray, uh, people will see it and then they'll laugh. They'll also note that I have a half-empty uh, orange juice glass, and I've been waiting, waitress, this thing my, to get filled <clears throat> up for quite some time. Because my audience is just that demanding. <laughs> uh, and Denny's does have the best Wi-Fi, so I can understand why Bill <laughs> Bill is there. I would settle for some wait staff right now. The dog is no help. That's very reminiscent of the episode in which uh, is the John Cleese character is in the restaurant or in the, the little diner throughout the episode, making his announcements as far as which sketch is coming next. And he's like, and now for the coffee. And she keeps bringing him coffee and I don't want any coffee and screaming at her. I just love it. That, uh, that, that oh, the go ahead, Bill. The fork yet. I'm I'm still I, I haven't unwrapped the uh, the cutlery yet because I don't want to find a dirty fork. <laughs> that that uh, uh, that uh, sketch almost made my top five. Well, let me ask you. So, oh, if yeah. I remember correctly, that that skit, uh, John Cleese is wearing like a like a clear type of raincoat. Correct. He had this. He appeared several times as this in, character in, uh, uh, in the diner sketch. In the diner sketch, he's just in his suit and tie. He's playing okay. the guy that usually sits behind the desk and says, "An for something completely different." Okay. Never mind. But in the fish license sketch, he does wear that. They call it a pack-a-mac, and it's pack like, yeah, it's like a clear raincoat, like a like a what do they call that? There are no sleeves. It's just a, a neck hole that you throw it on and it covers oh, you. Oh, poncho. And, yeah, it's like okay. a, a clear raincoat poncho. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I seem to remember John Cleese wearing that during a couple of skits and yeah. thinking, wondering if that was a character with a name. I can only think of maybe it's, two or three times that character appeared. They they had a number of characters like that 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 reappeared, but you, you they never named them at all in the show. The only way you would know their names is by buying some of their books. You know, I have this. I don't want to get it. It's way over there. I've got this. uh giant um it's like an annotated script book it's it's all the scripts from all the episodes and then there's notes about each episode and each sketch and whatnot it's it's really fun but yeah a lot of those guys they all have names they're in the scripts they're characters but you just you don't know them if you're just watching the shows 
I think I had those those books too. I believe there were two books, and I had them for years. Uh, and then just yeah. cleaning house, they just made it to to the thrift shop. Yeah, there were there were a couple. There were these. Yeah, the two volume books, paperbacks that had all the scripts in it. This this one came out maybe five years ago, and it's a hardcover, and it's it's a big volume. It's a big book. It's very unwieldy to read. You have to sit at a table with one of those big Bible trays, you know, that hold the giant oh, Bibles, yeah. you know, yes. <laughs> read yes. it like that. So, uh, a while yeah. Ago, so, yeah, a while ago, I took the uh, I took the family Bible and uh, placed it um, uh, placed in a very dark corner to be brought up and spat up upon my divorce. Um, but uh, uh, I replaced it with uh, uh, a Monty Python book uh, in your own. <laughs> Nice. Thank you. Thank you. So is it under is it under glass, Bill? It is sealed in uh, uh, the sheer Semite uh, and argon gases of various persuasions. It looks at me rudely, though. I'm uh, I'm not sure I like it. I may, have to, I may have to move it into the closet. Throw a towel over it. I, uh, I I do think about throwing a towel over it uh, from time to time, but uh, but then I I invariably walk by it and uh, the dog is sitting there on the floor looking up at me uh, wantingly, and I, I ask her, "Would you like a treat?" And she kind of goes, <clears throat> and I say, "Would you like to go on a walk?" And she says, <clears throat> and I go, "Let me read you from the book of Monty Python instead." And uh, then she uh, she usually rears up, uh, walks bipedally for the next uh, five or ten minutes, and uh, we uh, we slap high fives and uh, we sing songs in in peace. You have a strange life, Bill. <laughs> I have nothing life. better to do. I'm 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 a, I'm a bit envious. Well, of strange life you lead. Well, there's a reason I picked that dog. That's all I'll say. Hmm. Okay. You know, you know, I I wanted I wanted to brag about the new napkins I purchased from Dillard's, but yeah, well, your napkins, kind of, ooh, kind of, Dillard's. Your nap, yeah, I don't think your napkins have opposable thumbs either, so you can troll them just as hard as I troll my animals. <laughs> but they're quite soft. Are they monogrammed? Yeah, but but uh, with the letters F U, which was meant to stand uh-huh. for for uh, Frank just, University, because this was when I was going to try to start my own university, and you know, it, it's I a just, long story. I just realized your initials spell far. Yeah, they they do, and I'm actually a third. So Frank A. Rincon the third. Well, that's Art a lot better because three. Art three. <laughs> because as I, I I realized when I was about six years old, my initials spell bowel movement. So <laughs> that's why I go by with him. So uh, yes, I will not be responding to uh, anybody referring to me as Bill McGonnell anymore. Bowel movement. Bowel movement. Everybody, get a little close to your speakers. Bowel no. movement. Interesting yeah. life. So are you guys my, ready to, to talk about our top five sketches? I blame my parents. What? So I blame my parents for that. They I would, too. They should have thought better. I would, too. Well, at least they didn't name me Oswipe. So you take what you can get. And sometimes you borrow from other uh, comedy shows for your inspiration. And sometimes it does just doesn't work at all. That's okay. 
I'll let the know, audience figure out which one is which. I often tell people that the little jokes I say are for me and me only. As long I'm as a, I laugh, I my goal is has been met. I'm a I'm a big fan, and uh, what I do is I uh, I claim that these are all jokes for one, sometimes two. You and know, and, and that's on and, them. Yeah, and to bring it back to Monty Python, see what I'm doing here? They would often say that the sketches they wrote, as long as they made each other laugh, they would go into the show. So that's, that's how that's it works. how you should live your life. That is how it works. <clears throat> I've, uh, I always thought it was fascinating, too. Uh, uh, I don't know if you've referred to this in uh, your previous uh, Monty Python podcast, but the way that um, uh, the the cast actually wrote their, their skits, uh, I thought was really interesting. And I did not realize that once you find once you hear this, you go, oh, yeah, OK, that makes plenty of sense. But at the time you're going, oh. Really? They don't just all get together in a writer's room and like all six of them, you know, hash out, uh, you know, the, the next line of the script or whatever. But it turns out that uh, that they wrote in pairings uh, oftentimes. Um, yes. But, uh, yes. That uh, the, the, the great Graham Chapman and uh, John Cleese would uh, would oftentimes write together. And uh, uh, Eric Idle and Michael Palin would oftentimes write together. And they had wildly different ideas on how to uh, uh, construct sketches. Um, uh, Cleese and Chapman were famous for what they called their thesaurus uh, sketches, <laughs> uh, where they would go into uh, 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 take the uh, the best example is probably cheese shop, where the whole thing is uh, John and Graham would literally open a thesaurus and they would construct a sketch around uh the, around like 47 synonyms and uh I, I found that fascinating whereas uh, uh eric idle and uh michael palin would do a lot of the more kind of esoteric uh um when you say the weirder stuff in relation to monty python you're setting quite a bar there but yeah. uh, but yes their their stuff would be a little bit more uh surrealist i guess and uh, anytime you saw the uh the, the nuts and bolts meat and potatoes type of skits uh where they're just listing off thing after thing after thing you can be uh, certain that that is uh was written by uh graham chapman and john cleese so uh, go out and win those uh bar bets kids yeah and once you know their their pre-monty python days their pairings make more sense because John and Graham went to school together in um, I think it was Cambridge. And it's, it's very fascinating that, that these places had their own, like the, like, I think it was Cambridge that they, they had their own like theater club, but they also had their own room with a stage and a bar and, and, and you would, you would join their little club and you could write sketches and John and Graham would to get, would get, you know, eventually got together to write sketches. And then Michael and Terry Jones went to school together in Oxford. And so that's why they toured, they, they wrote together. They became friends. Eric Idle also went to Cambridge, but he wrote a lot by himself. So a lot of the sketches that were more just almost soliloquy, speech type sketches were were eric idol were because he was just writing you know as one guy and then of course terry gilliam was off in an attic cutting little pictures out of magazines <laughs> and, and and stuff and putting them together and making making uh animations with them but you know yeah. there 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 is a curse uh associated with monty python in that uh uh every member 
that has uh, ever been with them, the uh, the original six, uh, they've slowly been been dying off. Uh, first we had Graham Chapman, and I believe Terry Jones. Did he, or was it Pi- yes. Palin? Who? No, it's Terry Jones. Yeah, yeah Terry Jones. So I mean, uh, uh, if you've been associated with this troop, uh, chances are you will die. Yes, there's a good chance that eventually, at some point in your life, you will die. Yeah. So uh, I, I, that's a pretty high price to pay. Just be be warned. Graham Chapman uh, actually died on October 4th, 1989, the day before their, I guess, 20th anniversary. Um, for many years since their their anniversary lands on October 5th and Graham Chapman passed away on October 4th, for many years, I would take those two days off of work and do nothing for those two days but watch Monty Python. And if I had to be in the car for whatever reason, I was listening to Monty Python. So I haven't done that in years, but that's something I used to do. That's year. a very sweet gesture. I, I love that. I used to, um, uh, you were speaking earlier about uh, the records. And uh, yes, kids, I can't recommend uh, highly enough uh, listening to uh, Monty Python via the audio medium. Um uh, growing up on Monty Python, the the first album that, uh, that myself and uh, my uh, my 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 childhood bestie Kenny, uh, who was heavily into it as, as I was, uh, bought was the uh, Contractual Obligation album. And uh, to this day, I find that most of my personality is formed uh, by by that uh, album. I used to enjoy listening to it in, in the car as well, um, with the caveat that it's not easy to listen to uh, a record player in the car no um so i think that i I, that uh, a lot of railroad tracks a lot of potholes in norman growing up and i think i may have missed a few lines here and there so i do my best but um you know i'm just a man the uh, the, uh, go ahead well my first car had bench seats in it so i had a gramophone up front with me (laughs) excellent every time i would hit a stoplight i'd crank it up again the rolling spool and the giant horn, absolutely, yes. Uh, yep. uh, we made the move up to that, um, yes. When we uh, when we traded in the uh, the horses uh, to get our first uh, horseless carriage, um, we, uh, we we were able to trade up. I was I was in a very uh, wealthy family growing up, and we were able to make the trade up from uh, gramophone to turntable. The hi-fi, as they called them. Yes, it's not easy. Well, we we did quadraphonic, and it's not easy to have four tower speakers in a car, but somehow we made it work. Uh, I that's actually a blind spot for me. Uh, I don't. I I never really listened to any of the uh, albums, mostly just because I didn't have access to them. Well, if you if I mean if you got Spotify or anything like that, I would recommend you go out and listen to them because they're some great. Yeah, there you go. It's, you know, um, yeah, while we were talking, someone had mentioned the albums. And so I looked on I use YouTube music and uh, sure enough, there is a whole bunch of albums I'm looking forward to. Yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, Bill mentioned the contractual obligation album. It's there's a lot of songs on that one and a lot of great songs. Um, Some of their earlier ones. you didn't get that many songs. They were mainly sketches. And some of them were um, sketches from the show that they did in audio. But some of them were new. If you've ever listened to the soundtrack to the Holy Grail, that is that's a great one because it's 
they really went above and beyond for the sound, the soundtrack of the album of the trailer of the film, <laughs> Monty Python and the Holy Grail, <clears throat> because they, while there is audio of some of the movie in there, a lot of it is just brand new stuff at the time. And it's got some great original stuff in there. There's, there's this whole intro with John Cleese in the theater uh, reporting out, you know, as a, an on-the-spot reporter talking about the 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 debut, the premiere of the film, and he's he's in the rear stalls in the back, and he's trying to describe the first scene of the movie while people are watching it until eventually somebody tells him to shut up because he's being very loud back there describing the first scene of the movie to the people on the radio who can't see it. It's just it's really good stuff. It's it's one I would recommend, but. Um, I mean, good Lord, they're all good. Matching tie and yeah. handkerchief is, is one where they they tricked everybody with that album where they put on one. It, ha, it was a three sided album because on <laughs> one of the sides, they put two sets of grooves on there and didn't tell anybody. And so if you were listening to the album and you flipped it over and you put the needle on the record, depending on which groove you happen to hit would be the side you listen to. And. People would listen to it, not understand that there's more until maybe another sitting. They'd sit down and they put the needle on the record and suddenly they're hearing something completely different that they didn't hear the day before. And uh, uh, that was Brad, very interesting. Yeah. Our friend Brad has a very funny story about that, where uh, he I think if I remember the story correctly, he was scared when that happened. because it didn't <laughs> make sense. I hope I'm not misremembering it, but it was just like it made no sense to him. That's like, why is this different? Well, and they've told the story. They they had always for a long time assumed that they were the first ones to ever do anything like that. Then they found out that there were these old 45s like a decade or two uh, previous to them where you could buy a horse. It was a horse race and it had two different grooves, one or two different grooves on each side. And you would uh, it's like you would I don't know, depending on which groove you hit, they would have a different horse that won. And yeah, that, there, I, there were actually party kits with those records on it. So there could be as many as like five records on there yeah. with three races each. So, uh, um, you know, 15 different outcomes and it came up with cards. And so you, you it was meant to have a party with it. So everyone would make their bets. And then you'd pick a record at random and then play it. And then whatever happened, happened. That's crazy. I can I could only see that being interesting once. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yep. So, all right. Uh, I asked this earlier. Are you guys ready to do your top five Monty Python sketches? Let's do it. Oh, son. Yes. Okay, Bill, we'll start with you. Number <clears throat> five. Number five. My uh, my favorite skit uh, is the aforementioned cheese shop. Oh, that's a good one. I, I love cheese. I don't think people can have enough cheese. Uh, I rarely go to the bathroom because of all the cheese that I enjoy. So uh, <laughs> I say cheese. And uh, I would say that my house is certainly not clean of cheese uh, infestations. Good morning. Morning, sir. Welcome to the National Cheese Emporium. Ah, thank you, my good man. What can I do for you, sir? Well, I was uh, sitting in the public library in Thurman Street just now, skimming through rogue Harry's by Hugh Walpole, and I suddenly came over all peckish. 
Uzbekistan? It's Syrian. Hey? Yeah, we're all hungry, like. Ah, hungry. In a nutshell. And I thought to myself, a little fermented curd will do the trick. So I curtailed my wall-polling activities, sallied forth and infiltrated your place of purveyance to negotiate the vending of some cheesy comestibles. Come again. I want to buy some cheese. You know, that's one that the first time I encountered the cheese shop sketch was on that final ripoff album. So I hadn't even seen it on the show. Wow. Heard the audio first. So when I saw the original sketch, it just didn't have the same impact as the audio. The audio for me actually is a bit funnier. The um, uh, For me, it's just it's always been odd that um, uh Kind of like with uh, Star Trek, the original series. Sorry to sorry to drive off into a ditch here, but it's coming back uh, around uh, quickly. Uh, I don't ever remember a time in my life uh, with both Star Trek and Monty Python when I saw an episode and went, oh, "I haven't seen this one before." <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I'm sure that there are numerous times in my life when I did see an episode I'd never seen before, but I I grew up watching it uh, so so religiously that I. I literally there's never a time in my life when I thought to myself, this is a new thing uh, because it was just soaked into me as, as a, a eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 year old child. Talk about being in something's wheelhouse. huh? And doesn't that make you a little sad at times, though, that you're never going <laughs> to discover a new episode? You know, yes. I'm sorry, Bill. It is a uh, it, it is a very uh, sobering thought, uh, which is unfortunate on a Sunday morning. But um, I would what's weird is I would probably uh, bet my next paycheck that if I uh, if I if I went through and watched all of the Monty Python 16 ton box set, which is quite heavy, by the way, and very unwieldy, um, there's probably at least one sketch on there that I've never seen before, which would absolutely blow me away. So maybe someday I should uh, take them out of uh, the Semite and watch them. <laughs> yeah, I watch them. So there, I, I have so much time. I leave so much time now in between viewings that there are times we'll all come across a sketch and go, oh, I forgot about this sketch. But uh, that's that's about all I get. That's why I'm envious of Frank. He's going to start listening to these albums and he's going to hear stuff he's never heard before. What? This is true, especially if you uh, listen to uh, um, contractual obligation album is, I think, uh if I remember right, it's been a while. Um, I don't think it was any repurposed material. I think it was think all, uh, all fresh, all, all yep. hot, fresh, piping hot from the oven, fresh material there, Franklin. And the, and the joke is true. They made that album because they were contractually obligated to. Yes. I, uh, um, I always kind of assumed uh, that uh, that title should be taken quite literally. And yeah, so it's like good. Yeah, it's like one of those. It's like that's too on the nose. That can't be. That can't be really the story behind it. But no, it is. Nope, those are the Python boys, and that's exactly what it means. Yep. They mean what they say. All right, Frank, you're number five. Oh no, Frank is falling asleep. Oh, Frank. This is bad. I see him over there in the corner. He's kind of slumped <laughs> back against the sofa. Just he's just staring off into the distance. I hope he's okay. He may be, huh, I can't see if he's breathing. Uh, he's gone. Oh, my God. Well, uh, Stephen, I'm not sure why you offended Frank um, so strongly. Uh, no, I, 
Sometimes I do that without, I just, I don't even realize I'm doing it. If you'd like, while we're waiting, um, uh, we could, uh, we could go through and we could read the script of the North Minehead by-elections. Does that sound fun, everybody? Is that from Najoral's Saga? Njoral's Saga. Was that uh, Minehead? Yeah. No, no, it's actually, no, uh, um, yes. Yeah, that's so the election night special, right? Yes, it, it, it's from the, uh, um, from the Naked Ant episode. Yes. Uh, yes. Oh my God, Frank, you have become alien to me. And yes. I mean that basically in the, the, the tone of your voice. <laughs> I apologize. I hope I'm coming across better. Not really. No, it's not so much. You know, it's actually, uh, it's actually quite bad. Uh, uh I'm going to log off. And I'll log back on. See you Again? In a oh, my goodness. How long is this podcast? As long as we need it to be. When uh, I was speaking of Njural's saga, I was thinking of um, uh, now I, Malden, the town of Malden that, that uh, sponsors Njural's saga. It keeps <laughs> popping up in that Icelandic saga. <laughs> I... Uh, I, I didn't realize until later in life that uh, a lot of those uh, so-called theme episodes were uh, the last uh, season or two. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I thought that was very interesting. Uh, uh, I, I have to this day, I've, I've never been able to ask any of the Pythons, uh, Pythoners, um, except for the, the seances I, I have with Graham Chapman. I just never for, think to ask him about this. But did they write those uh, those episodes uh those thematic episodes um, because they had used up all their good ideas, which is, is my thought or because uh, they were literally trying something new. And uh, I never did uh, quite figure that out. Yes. Um, Scott of the Antarctic and uh, Joral's saga, a lot of, uh, a lot of Scandinavian. Um, Mr. Neutron. Yes. Mr. Neutron. You know, uh, a lot of that, my the theory is, my theory is a lot of that is because, John Cleese left after the second series. I think he left partway into the third series. And so the way I understand it, he and Terry Jones were probably the two loudest voices in the room when it came to what was going on the show. And they bumped heads a lot. And so when John Cleese left, there was really nobody there to oppose Terry Jones. And so, a lot of those episodes at that point, you know, you mentioned how the the differences between the the writing pairs and how Terry Jones and, and Michael Palin did more of the the surreal type of type of sketches. And that's how a lot of those episodes came out there in, in the last couple of seasons. I mean, think of the golden age of ballooning that <laughs> that's such a wonderful episode, but it's so weird. And would we have gotten episodes like the golden age of ballooning if John Cleese had still been part of the troop at that point? I, I don't know. Well, first of all, it's not a balloon. It's an airship. It's an airship. I might have to invite someone to go outside and look. <laughs> yes. And the couple who are cataloging all of the German <laughs> nobility that have fallen into their it's the drawing room, dear. Yes. Which is weird because there's there's another Monty Python episode where uh, uh, or no, is it that one where uh, um, 
people keep falling uh, from great distances and they uh, they keep landing on the same uh, hay bale and uh, uh, mentioning their luck. That is uh, that's one. Mm, I don't think it's the same episode. No, the guy those, yes, bursts into the plane like cabin to uh, uh, oh. hijack the plane to take him to. Right. Thank He's you. Like, well, this is a scheduled <laughs> flight to Cuba. Like, well, yes, that's kind of the purpose of me coming in here with the gun. And then he doesn't want to bother them. He doesn't want them to go out of their way. And so, right. so well, there's a hay bale outside or wherever. Yeah. And he just jumps out of the plane and lands on the hay bale. How lucky. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Oh dear heavens. Frank A. Rincon says he's working on issue. He's, he's there he is. It's a euphemism yeah. for doing horrible, uh, number two bathroom stuff. I'm sure. Yes. <laughs> that is actually true. Bill. Yay. Did you did you did you put some double uh, A batteries in the old router there? <laughs> I had to wind it back up. It had just uh, it had just lost its 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 wind. So you know how it is with yes. with these new routers, newfangled machines. Yeah. Anyway, I apologize for that, guys. That's now, okay, that's Frank. Okay. Um, Frank still has an analog. Uh, uh, we call it a, a grandfather uh, router, uh, which means that he has to wind it up daily and it chimes uh, on the hour. He has to take the the rotary phone and put it into the modem. Well, yeah, know, he the, has to, the handset and put it in the modem. The, he has to lift the weights up on the chain, and as they fall <laughs> gradually, he gets. Yeah, I don't mean to brag, but I'm working 28.8 here. So, you know, it's top of the yeah. line. Dude, I've, I've got, upgraded. I got Man, I got some firmware that gets you up to 33.6, boyo. Whoa. I know. I don't think we need that much V-Bill. You're being ridiculous. I was thinking about that yesterday, uh, <laughs> honestly, uh, that I'm sitting there uh, uh, downloading um, downloading some apps uh, to my uh, new tab. Uh, thank you, Fantasy Football Winnings. And... Um, I was sitting there thinking to myself, you know, I'm downloading uh, right now at whatever it was. Um, and uh, back in the old days, it would take you 15 minutes to download a five megabyte song. Oh, yeah. See, that's another story that kids won't believe these days if you tell no. them. Yeah, that's why I look at kids and I go, luxury. You with your you with your your 8K phones and your 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 quadraphonic earpieces and stuff. And your penicillin. That's and, right. And That's indoor right. plumbing. That's right. They're moon landings. They're, they're daily moon landings. That's right. <laughs> That's right. When I was a child, we didn't have moon landings. Oh, wait, we did. All right, Frank, we were going to do your number five. Confuse a cat. Your cat is suffering from what we vets haven't found a word for. <laughs> This condition is typified by total physical inertia, absence of interest in its ambience, what we vets call environment. Failure to respond to the conventional external stimuli, a ball of string, a nice juicy mouse, a bird. To be blunt, your cat is in a rut. It's the old stockbroker syndrome. The suburban fin de siècle ennui. Angst, Weltschmerz, call it what you will. Moping. In a way, in a way. Hmm. Moping. I must remember that. Now, what's to be done? Tell me, sir. Have you confused your cat recently? Well, wish. No. 
Yes. Well, I think I can definitely say that your cat badly needs to be confused. What? Shh. What? Confused. To shake it out of its state of complacency. I'm afraid I'm not personally qualified to confuse cats. But I can recommend an extremely good service. Here is that card. Oh, confuse a cat limited. Cat limited. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the reason most I had to, I had to look it up. I maybe have only seen this skit a handful of times, and it sticks with me just because the premise is just so absurd. Uh, of course, on YouTube you can find many of these skits, and just the absurdity of the concept is just brilliant to me. That's why Confuse a Cat is one of my top five. Monty Python skits. It's on my honorable mentions list. Um, there's a moment in that sketch with Michael Palin, and we haven't talked about who our favorite Pythons are yet, but Michael Palin is my absolute favorite. My daughter, I have my, my youngest kid, my daughter, her name is Palin, named after Michael Palin. Oh, wow. he, he, if you ever just get bored with watching Monty Python on the Holy Grail, watch any scene that Michael Palin is in and he's not saying anything, just watch it. Just just watch the movie just to watch him. He's got some of the best reactions. But there's a moment in that sketch because he plays like the the drill sergeant guy who gets everybody out of the van and he's getting ready to order the his, the best line is he goes ever he goes get into the van and fetch out the silly things. And then they all run into the van and they <laughs> fetch out the silly things and just. The way he delivers that line is 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 wonderful. Confusers! Get into the van and fetch out! Wait for it! Fetch out! The funny things! Yeah, that just because of the absurdity and and things like that is just it, it for myself, it is just the pinnacle of just like silliness and randomness, but with a purpose. Yes. Like, uh, like it's it's very easy to do something that is is kind of random or silly. For instance, I wasn't on this this video shoot, but a friend told me about it. They had a um, they were working with an executive who thought himself very funny, and he wanted to end this very serious speech, holding up a taco that was uh, a fake taco that he had gotten from uh, from. Uh, I guess Taco Bell. I don't know. Uh, but they kept asking, why do you want to do that? And he goes, because it's random. And he thought that was so funny that they they ended up doing it because that's what he wanted. But that randomness doesn't have a purpose to where Confuse a Cat is so random and yet still has an umbrella. <laughs> Um, hello. Yes, uh, my name is Albert Droll, and, uh, and I was, well, I was sitting here editing this episode of, uh, Just Another Fanboy, and, uh, well, I, I accidentally dropped an avocado into the editing bay, and, well, you heard what happened. Um, sorry. Unfortunately, uh, Stephen isn't currently available, and I'm, I'm not quite sure what to do. I mean... Luckily, the avocado didn't ruin the entire file, just a few seconds there in the middle, so there's still over an hour left to go, and, well, I know that Stephen had mentioned at one point that 
due to the total length of this episode that he may want to split it in half and make two episodes out of it. So, well, I guess that seems like this is good a time as any. Yeah. Um, yeah, I suppose that means I'm making an executive decision. That's it. That's the end of the episode. There's no more for you to listen to. So come back on Thursday and we'll have part two ready for you. Okay? Okay. Sounds good. I, uh, I feel pretty all right about this. Not completely terrified in any way. So that's it. This is the end. To be continued. And we will see you on Thursday. Goodbye. <laughs> sure why you're still sticking around there on your end the uh the episode's over there there's nothing more nothing left to be said so so yeah stop listening because there's no more left i mean there wouldn't even be this bit here if you hadn't insisted on sticking around which really you shouldn't be doing so please leave move on find another podcast to listen to i'm not joking 
There's no more content here in this episode. Move along. Nothing to see here. Look, I'm not sure why you're still hanging on there, but that's it. I'll have no more of it. I'm going to just stop recording and that will be the end of it. I mean it. Here it goes. The button is right here. All that's left for me is to press it. And I'm going to do it. I mean it. I'm not messing around here. Fine. You won't listen to me. You've only got yourself to blame. I'm going to press the button. I'm going to do it. I'm going to press it. Here I go. I'm pressing it. Now. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. <laughs> 